He's the president and chief executive officer of Walmart U.S. e-commerce, appointed to the role in September 2016 when his company, Jet.com, was acquired by Walmart Inc. for $3 billion. He founded and grew Jet.com to a billion dollars in gross merchandise value run rate in its first year. Prior to Jet, he was the co-founder and CEO of Quidzy, the parent company of e-commerce websites Diapers.com, Soap.com, Wag.com, and more, which was sold to Amazon in 2011 for $550 million. His industry accolades include Ian Wise Entrepreneur of the Year regional winner and being named one of the smartest people in technology by Fortune. Prior to being a serial entrepreneur, he held various investment banking positions, including Executive Vice President of Sanwai International Bank in London and Vice President of Emerging Market Risk Management at Credit Suisse First Boston. He graduated from Bucknell University, where he received a Bachelor's of Arts in Business Management and Economics, graduating cum laude. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders Podcast with Mark Laurie. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders Podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curve benders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curve benders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Noor here. I want to tell you about another podcast that I'm involved with that I think you would get a lot of value from, particularly if you're in sales, sales management, or sales leadership. It's called Tech Sales Insights, hosted by me and a longtime friend and former client, Randy Seidel. Each week, we interview chief revenue officers, VPs of sales, channels, and other sales leaders about what they're seeing, what they're thinking, and what are they doing differently to drive profitable growth, attract exceptional talent, and past experiences that have had a profound impact on who they are and how they lead. The lessons are invaluable, whether you're just starting out in sales are mid-career sales management, or have been in the revenue generation business as a leader for some time. Get Tech Sales Insights where you get your podcasts or at salescommunity.com slash podcast. Hi, everybody. David Knorr. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm elated to be joined today by Mark Laurie, president and CEO of Walmart's U.S. e-commerce business, Mark, welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. Hey, thanks so much. I appreciate it. It's great to have you. Mark, for those who may not know as much about you, can you briefly just describe your professional background? Sure, sure. So currently, I'm the president and CEO of Walmart's e-commerce business. I joined Walmart. I've been doing that now for a little over four years. I got 
to be a part of Walmart because I sold my startup Jet.com to Walmart back in 2016. Before that, I was working at Amazon for a few years. I got there the same way. I sold my startup Quidsy, which was the parent company of Diapers.com, Wag.com, there's a pet site, Soap.com, and a bunch of others. Sold to Amazon back in 2011. And before that, did a couple other startups that I sold. And before that, was in banking for seven years. I worked at Credit Suisse First Boston, Bankers Trust, and San Juan Bank. So you've been at Walmart now for four years. Uh, what has surprised you most about the experience? You know, having worked inside of both Amazon and Walmart, two very large companies, they couldn't be more different. So one of the things that I was really pleasantly surprised about at Walmart was the culture there. I really enjoyed uh, working there the last four years. I enjoyed the culture. It is a place where social cohesion matters, where you know, integrity, trust, transparency are paramount. Those are values that really resonate with me. Those were the values that I really pushed at my previous couple startups. And I'm a big believer that the values and, and the culture is sort of everything. When you think about the long term or the longevity of a, of a corporation. In our last conversation, you brought up vision, capital, people, VCP as 90% of what really matters. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that just I keep coming back to with every new startup. I realized that a lot of the time I was spending on things I probably shouldn't have been because it was taking time away from VCP. So I, I do believe now, fundamentally, that's the secret to being a, uh, an entrepreneur, is really getting that right, is spending a lot of time on the vision, making sure that the vision is is super clear to everybody in the organization. Everybody knows where you're headed, uh, what the big you know goal out there is, and then spending your time making sure that you surround yourself with the right people that can execute it, which includes the organizational structure, which I think is really important. And then, of course, raising capital to, to put that plan into action. If you have the right vision, you frame it up properly, you create the org structure to support it, hire the best people in the world, create a culture of, of empowerment, empower them so you get the best out of them, and then go raise enough capital to make sure it's got all the, the, the chances of, of being successful then you're 90% of the way there. You don't need to you know, spend as much time actually getting into the weeds. If you've got the right people, they should be doing the vast majority of the heavy lifting there. You also, whether it was uh, diaper.com or, or jet.com, you, you seem to take something, you make small changes to something that, that's working. You make those tweaks to really kind of create scale. Is that nurture or is that nature? Were you born to do this or is this something you've developed over the years and, and, and you've had several chances to, to do this? Yeah, I think I've just something that I've developed over time. It's a little counterintuitive to you know go into a really big market with already an incumbent that is very strong. You know, in e-com, both businesses were, were going up head to head with Amazon. Most people would think that's crazy, but you know, I'm just looking at the, the size of the market and the fact that very rare to have a market that's dominated by one single player. There's usually more than one player in a market, especially a really big market. And so that was sort of the, the original high-level thesis, is go into a really big market, find a little twist, some way to do it a little bit differently or unique, and then hire great people, 
raise a ton of capital and go after it. I know you do your uh, startup stand-up on LinkedIn, and you have a, a particular passion for, for diverse female founders. What are the top questions that entrepreneurs ask you most often? Oh, it's all across the board. I, I mean, I definitely get asked you know, what it takes to be, be an entrepreneur. That, I get that question a lot. I get questions around raising capital, whether or not they should raise capital and give up part of their part of their company. What's the best way to put together a pitch deck? Whether or not they should go, you know, especially a local business, whether the local business should go deep locally or start spreading to more locations quickly so that the competition doesn't do it before them. I get those are some of the, the questions that I get a lot. In thinking about your own personal journey, are there two, three highlights that you believe have had a profound or lasting impact on you? What's shaped the person you've become today? Yeah, I think a big one was working in banking. The banks are not known for having the best culture. It's all about, it's a mercenary culture, as I call it. Mercenary versus missionary. Mercenary meaning I'm just, I'm just, just there to make a buck. I don't care about the mission. And mission is just sort of driven the mission first, and you're happy to make money, but it's the mission what drives you. In banking, there's a very much a, a mercenary culture where people just wanted to get paid money and didn't care about values, didn't care about how they treated people. It was, it was all about making money. And I knew that that wasn't what motivated me at the time, and I knew it unlikely was to motivate many other people. And when I started my first startup, I sort of took that lesson and said, you know, I'm going to kind of go in the opposite direction and really focus on the mission of the company, hire people that believed in the mission, that were more missionary than mercenary. And that started with that seed of a thought. And then each with each startup, it's evolved to the point now where it's way more important than I ever thought it was. I think it's it's sort of everything. Talking about, you know, the mission, are there some consistent traits or attributes of world-class entrepreneurs, those that you've been around, those that you've seen, those that you admire, what are, what are the entrepreneurial superstars do exceptionally well? Yeah, I think there's a few traits. I, I sort of look for these traits when I hire people. I call it SPOTIC. That's the acronym, S-P-O-T-A-K-E. And it's basically, you look for people that are smart, passionate, optimistic, tenacious, adaptable, kind, and empathetic. Those are sort of the, the traits I look for. But if I had to pick a few that really stand, jump out uh, as being consistent among all successful entrepreneurs, I think it is the optimism. So believing that you can do great things, big things, hard things, like it's that optimism that that sort of belief that you can do it because you have to believe it. A lot of times these startups get really challenged. And if you don't believe you're, you're sort of dead on arrival. So I think optimism, I think the sort of tenacity, which I, which are sort of around the sort of hard work and doing whatever it takes in terms of the amount of time and effort you have to put in there so that you don't lose because you didn't put the time in, you know, it's sort of that tenacity, just keep going after it, keep coming after it, being adaptable. So you constantly have to sort of rethink your, your strategy, your tactics, uh, evaluating all the, the facts around you and not getting stubborn and having a point of view of being able to adapt and change your point of view as you start seeing new facts come in, even if it means having 
you know, egg on your face and, and having to go back to the, to the company and say, Hey, uh, I missed this. We missed this. Uh, we have to change immediately. Uh, this new information makes the, the strategy we had irrelevant or something that the competitor did made the strategy irrelevant. We have to change tactics. And then finally, and this is a big one, and this really separates entrepreneurs from the ordinary business people, is the ability to take risk. Every entrepreneur that I know that's been successful has had to take risk. Risk meaning that there's a low probability of success, but you go after it hard anyway. I think a lot of people are very uncomfortable with that situation when they know, hey, this is only a 20% chance of working or 30% chance of working. That means that there's a 70 or 80% chance this thing's not going to work. And I'm going to kill myself and work 100 hours a week and do all this, but it may not work. Not only may not work, it probably won't work. That defines an entrepreneur is the ability to look at that probability and say, I don't care because if it does work, this is 100x, 1,000x. This is world changing. And I'm okay with failing because I will get back right up again and find another 20 to 30% shot and go after it. And you know, if you keep going after 20 to 30% shots, one time you're going to hit it. And you have to have that mentality, not knowing when it's going to happen. It could be the first time. It could be the fifth time. But entrepreneurs, they don't give up. They keep coming after it. And the ones that do, they ultimately are successful. But each time you have to like put that crazy effort in and the 20 to 30% probability is after putting in the crazy effort. Some people think, well, let me put a little effort in, see if I could shake out if the probability is going to go to 90. It doesn't work like that. It is kill yourself, you get to 20 or 30, and then you find out if it works. <laughs> you recently wrote uh, Six Gear of Entrepreneurship. Is that along the same lines? of, of That is beyond? exactly right. I, I, I love talking about the sixth gear because yeah. unless you're an entrepreneur that's been in that sort of situation of sort of life or death situation, you don't know what the sixth gear is. What I mean sixth gear is like the sort of level of drive you have and motivation to, to succeed. When you're in a corporation and you're working really hard, you could be a banker, you could be a lawyer, you could be in a corporation, you're working really hard, putting in the hours and you feel like, you're in sixth gear, you're probably really only in third or maybe fourth gear. But you still had another, at least another two gears left. And most people would say, no, I'm pretty maxed out. No, no. When it's life or death and you basically have no other choice but to succeed, you find those extra two gears. And I do think it's those extra two gears in all four of my startups. That was the difference between making it, making it big, and it failing. There's no way any of those startups would have worked if I maintained like being in fourth gear, which was still working hard. It's just a different level of, res you know, resilience, a different, different level. It's a, of different, it's a different level. It is the level of like, I, you know, to tell you some stories, but I mean, it is the level of like, you may have to work literally every waking hour of the day, seven days a week with five hours of sleep during certain periods of time, you know, it, it's, it's hard to even fathom, like until you're in that position where you basically, it feels like, or should feel like when you're in sixth gear that you got a gun to your head. It is all out. Every single ounce of energy you've got goes into the, to the business. Uh, some people have been able to make successful business without ever having to find the sixth gear, but I think it's rare. More often than not, when I talk to entrepreneurs, they have stories about how they had to reach for the sixth gear to pull themselves out of some sort of 
hole that they were in. I'm genuinely uh, fascinated by what what gets your attention, what gets on your radar. You recently invested in Archer, the the hovering plane kind of flying car concept. What what did you yeah, see? Yeah, electric Evitol, electric vertical takeoff and landing. It's basically like sort of like a mini helicopter, but all electric, much safer. It's it's kind of like a big drone actually. It's a drone that carries people. That's probably the best way to describe it. It's a it's a drone that carries people. What made you excited about them or their business model? So first of all, you know, vision. So they had a really big vision for, you know, changing the future of transportation and made a compelling argument why the future of transportation will be these eVTOLs, which will eventually get smaller over time and resemble more of a, a sort of car type feel. And, and the idea is that you can, you can travel safely and efficiently faster than you can today with, with the standard cars. So the vision was big, you know, again, going to the VCP, the vision was there uh, in terms of capital. They'd already done a startup before. I felt like they were good sales people and, and I felt like they could, they could sell the vision and I felt like they'd be able to raise the capital. Uh, that was a big thing because it would require a lot of capital. I felt like I can help there. And then and on the people side, both the two co-founders exhibited all the spotic traits that I just you know mentioned before. They were incredibly hungry, tenacious. They'd already have one success, you know, starting a company and selling it. They had a little taste of it, but it wasn't a huge exit, but, but like enough to know that they know, you know, they knew what had to be done and they were willing to do whatever it takes. You know, the passion was there, the drive, the tenacity, the big vision. And it was really, that's really what it takes, you know? How do you, uh, how do you, I've always believed the day you stop learning and growing is the day you become complacent and you're no longer valuable to your biggest you know, asset, which is your portfolio of relationships. How are you learning? How are you growing after all that you've done and all you've accomplished? That's a great question. I love talking to people. So I'm not a big reader. I don't read. I prefer to talk to people and think. I, I've found, you know, early on, I guess, I don't know. You start reading stuff and then you start developing a point of view in your own mind of the author that wrote the book or wrote the magazine article or wrote the newspaper clip. And then you start reading. Now, today, you, you get sent you know, with all, all this personalized you know, media. You're sort of reading stuff that you've read before and it sort of reinforces the message. And you start to, to get tunnel vision where it's like, okay, you read something, then you read something else. Oh, that must be the answer. That's where the world's going. That's, and you sort of just go with that. And you haven't really just taken in sort of the, the well-rounded set of facts to draw your own opinion about where the world's going. And in order to do that, you have to spend a lot more time thinking than reading, I find. And so I don't really read. I, I talk to people. I try to talk to people in, in lots of different industries. It could be healthcare, it could be transportation, it could be education, it could be food, it could be retail. Like as broad a set of people, it could be politics, it could be historian, it could be you know, just scientists, doctors. Try to talk to as broad a set of people that you possibly can just to get a taste for where they think their particular field, profession is going, how the world's changing, things like that. And then spend time thinking, piecing it all together. You know, there's no better way to, to sort of innovate than to have a little bit of knowledge in a lot of areas and then figure out 
you know, just, just to sheer like thinking, you know, you don't really get that from reading in my opinion. What do piano lessons come in that, in that mix? <laughs> oh, you heard about that. Yeah. In addition to talking to people, I think there's a lot to be learned from trying different things, putting your brain into, into different situations. You know, when I was younger, I was like, oh, you know, I just want to learn how to fly a plane because I thought that would be interesting, you know, a learning experience. And how does that work? And, you know, obviously you know, different sports and things. One of the things I never did or had time to do or because I wasn't good at it, it had zero musical ability was to learn an instrument or anything like that. I mean, just zero on the musical side. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to throw myself in and just like learn how to play the piano again, just to like get that part of the brain going. Like, why, why am I so bad? You know, when it comes to music, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I'm just curious, basically. And are you good at being bad at something? Is it because it seems to be anti your personality? Like, are you willing to be really bad at something for a while to learn and grow through the process? You know, when I was younger, I would say absolutely not. I had to be the best at everything that I that I put my mind to. It was sort of just like now I I have evolved to the point where I really appreciate the experience and I'm totally okay being bad at stuff now. In fact, I just I sort of just enjoy the the process, the experience, learning. If 10 is sort of the the best in the world at something and you know, I'm a zero today, but I could be a one tomorrow. I'm happy with that. You know what I mean? It's just sort of movement. It's progress. It's movement. But more than that, it's not even about being good at something. It's really about just growing, learning, learning how to think differently, learning how to appreciate. I don't think I would have as much appreciation for the piano until I took my first two lessons. Now, now when somebody plays it, I have a very a deep appreciation more so than before. So there's some, a little bit of that too. You know, you do things and you can really appreciate you know, people's talents and you know, in a way that maybe maybe you wouldn't otherwise. As you and I talked about, curve benders are relationships that really help drive our nonlinear growth. Can you think of one or two examples of people in your life that have shaped your trajectory, your direction, your destination to date? I would definitely have to say my dad for sure. He was a little bit of a, a crazy man. I would say, you know, in the nicest way, dad, you know, if you're listening, (laughs) crazy man, but talk about failure. He had no, he just didn't care about failure at all. I mean, zero. Like like there's no fear of failing. Yeah. No fear of failing. Like, but, but like things that he would go for things that had a very, very low probability, not the 20 or 30%. He'd go for things that had like, you know, 1% probability and go after them like it was going to happen. And it was just you know, fascinating, you know, growing up as a kid, you're like, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. And the funny thing is, you know, you took all these 1% shots, none of them ever worked. Not one single 1% shot worked, but, but the mentality and the ability to get fired up time and time again to go after these 1% shots was fascinating to me. You know, like I didn't realize it as a, as a kid, but it enabled me to feel like I was being conservative, taking a 20% shot or a 10% shot. You know, I'm like, this is, this, this is like, uh, you know, compared to the shots you know, this guy takes, this is like, <laughs> this is gold. You know, it was all, it's all relative. You know, one day he, uh, you know, my mom was a, was a, was a bodybuilder and, and was training Bruce Springsteen's ex-wife now, Julianne a long time ago. 
And my dad, you know, loved deep sea fishing and told my, my mom, hey, why don't you ask Julia next time you train her uh, if Bruce Springsteen wants to go deep sea fishing? So my mom was like, okay, I'll ask her. So of course my dad took that as like gold, told me and my, bro- my brother, who was like, we were like 14 and 10, that we're going deep sea fishing with Bruce Springsteen. We don't know any better. We're basically telling all our friends we're going deep sea fishing. My dad just sort of was like, yeah, we're going. And I'm like, great. And I, it turns out that, you know, she hadn't even asked yet whether he wanted to go. Weeks went by, wasn't getting an answer, kept trying again, trying again, never got an answer. Up until that morning, we woke up. We were going fishing with Bruce. He woke up in the morning. We're like, oh, I can't believe we're going fishing with Bruce. It's like, yep, get in the car. It was five o'clock in the morning, dark out, drove to his house, knocked on his door. Now, he hadn't heard anything. Hadn't heard anything about about back, whether he wants to go fishing or not. Just knocked on the door. And we're in the car. We're excited. Bruce is going to come out. We're going to go fishing together. And uh, these two huge guys basically grabbed my dad. And start cursing at him, grab him, pick, lift him up off the ground. And he's like kicking his feet, you know, as they carry him to the car. And my dad's like, no, we're going fishing with Bruce. And he's like, oh, Bruce is not going fishing with you. Get the hell out of here. It's five o'clock in the morning. My dad gets in the car. You would think, you know, me and my brother are shaking right now. Like, and like just literally shaking because we just can't believe what just happened. My dad gets in the car and we're like, dad, dad, what, what happened? What's going on? He's like, oh, I guess Bruce didn't want to go fishing. You guys ready to go? And it was that was it. Just shook it off, and we went fishing, and we had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. It was it, you know. And it was just like, okay, so that's what happens when you fail. You just kind of shake it off. There was no mention of it. There was no anything. You just, it was just like, guess he didn't want to go, and that was it. And we just went, went fishing. Do you believe that gusto is just a dying breed? I mean, you don't meet too many people that swing for the fence like that and when it doesn't work out it just rolls off their backs i know i don't i don't i haven't met very many if any people that are that crazy you know like but it, it is fascinating because first of all if you think about the journey and the experience like we had a hell of a lot of fun like the lead up to it had a lot of fun going there and then when the when the fun was over when it was sort of like a bad outcome it was forgotten in seconds and so really all you had was the experience and the excitement leading up to it. And then you had the future. There was no dwelling on the failure, the past or anything. And he would do this all the time. And it was just, it's just fascinating. Like, it's like, Oh, I guess that, I guess that was fun. It's now a story. We talk about it. We laugh about it. I guess, I guess he created something out of nothing. And so even though it didn't work and it had a zero probability, it was a meaningful contribution to our life. Like it added, it added something. But he turned something that had a zero into something, and it was it even turned out to be a zero. That's what's wild. Anyone else professionally that's shaped shaped your career in a, in a profound way? I don't know about a profound way, but I, I think I was really lucky with the bosses that I had early in my career. It could have been, I could have gone in a very different direction, but I had some incredible bosses out of sheer like luck, good fortune that were had incredible value system It shaped you know how i think about business and how i think about the world and the idea that you know kindness and empathy are, are just as important as, as sort of the the other traits that i mentioned before and that's why it's part of spotic like you know can you be tenacious and also be kind can you be a risk taker and also be empathetic 
And I think it's the combination of putting those traits together is where the real magic is. Because at the end of the day, BCP, we talk about it, it's, it's, it's people is a big part of that. And how do you hire great people, motivate them, get the best out of them? It's not from using the stick. It is treating them with respect, being, you know, trusting them, empowering them, being respectful, being kind, caring, empathetic. That's how you get the best out of people. And that has been a little bit of the magic. And I think, I think I like to believe that, you know, I'm, I'm sort of known in, in, into the entrepreneurial circles as, as creating and investing a lot in the culture and the people. And I, I really think that's the big differentiator. It's come out of something that was learned. You know, it definitely wasn't like just born that way. I was born a mercenary. I was born into thinking that, you know, working and, and your job is, is to make money and nothing else. It was just money. You know, when I, when I first graduated college, I went to work at a bank. First thing I did was put a sign on the wall of my, you know, little work cubicle there that said six figures by 26, seven figures by 37, eight figures by 48. It was all the goals were all monetary related. It was all like money, you know, make the money, you know, and, and then, like I said, it, it wasn't until I sort of got out of bank and I realized I had it completely wrong. I had it upside down. And the most value I've created in my life has come post that realization, realizing that that is truly values that create the value. And I'm fortunate enough to have learned that from the leaders that have been in my life. I never would have learned that otherwise. And I do think it's the magic. I think it's the big differentiator. And I think more people in business should really focus on values and culture and the mission more. And, and I think we'd all be better off if that were the case. So to build on that, what do you believe takes to be a curve bender in the lives of others? I think it's basically what, what I was saying there is if you really want to be a curve bender, you have to give more than you take. You have to lift people up. You have to trust people. Trust is a big one. So many people start off from a place of distrust or if they think they start off from a trusting place, they'll say, yeah, trust, definitely, but trust, but verify. I don't believe in that. I believe in trust, period. There's no verification necessary. It's trust. Does that mean you're going to get burned sometimes? Yes. But I think that's probably one of the most powerful values that you could really put to work to lift people up and create curve benders. You trust people. People want to give you the best they've got. I've just found that out. It's like just the blind trust. People don't want to let you down if you really believe in them and trust them. Trust them to the point where they could burn you. And, and they do just the opposite. Nobody wants to burn somebody when they feel trusted. They want to burn people when they feel not trusted and not bonded. And some of the best outcomes I've ever had have been sort of blindly trusting people. I don't mean necessarily in business. It could be in anything. I think salespeople are sort of like, maybe trained, you know, to, to sell you the, the extra accessories and things. You go to buy a car and they want to sell you the insurance and they want to sell you the, the tire maintenance and all this stuff. And it's part of the, part of the game, you know, that's where the money's made. That's where the profit is. And, and you sort of feel like that's what you do and you have a license to do that because you're trying to make money for the business. But there was one time that I was in the market to buy a car and I knew I wanted this type of car, but I was on a, on a conference call when I got there on a phone. And the place was going to close. And I just put the phone on mute for a second. And I told the salesperson, the other guy that was there, I said, hey, listen, I'm not going to be able to go through all the details and accessories and everything else and insurance and stuff. Can you just 
kick all this stuff out as you would buying it yourself and I'll just sign it. I trust you. I trust you. And most people thought that was crazy. But what happened was, and I didn't even expect this to happen, but after I got off the call, it was getting ready to, to, to close and he had put everything together and he walked through the everything and he did it in a way that was not typical for a salesperson. He said, Hey, I just want you to know the insurance piece. I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't buy that for myself. You can do better by going here and you can go do this. And this accessory I got, cause I think it's important. This one's extraneous. You don't need that. The math, these mats are fine. And he went through all the things I said, Hey, listen, don't even have to go through everything. I really appreciate you doing this and I appreciate the attitude you're taking here. Where do I sign? And I just signed it, got it, took the car home. <laughs> and I, I had a friend who was like, wow, you bought this car. He's like, did you get the so-and-so? I said, um, I don't know. He goes, what do you mean you don't know? I said, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if the guy picked it out for me. He goes, what do you mean the guy picked it out? Didn't you pick it out? I said, no, I just trusted the sales. He said, wait a second. You just trusted him to pick out the thing. But, but how do you know that's what you want? And I said, hey, listen, I love the car. It's working great. I don't know what I don't know. I just love it. It worked. And by the way, I didn't have to put any time into it, which is really how you get leverage. I think when you trust people, it's kind of wild. You get incredible leverage because when you're able to, to trust people, you don't have to verify, you can get a lot more done. Mm. You know, you find, find someone, empower them, trust them, and then they start running. Whether it be buying a car, decorating an apartment, which I did, by the way, with, with zero of my own input. Again, it was another one that was like, hey, decorate the apartment. However you see fit, do it as if you were going to live here. And here's a budget. Thank you. And she came back and said, oh, this is the best project I ever worked on in my life. I was so passionate about it. I put everything I had into it. There was no change orders. So it didn't. I didn't make as much money as I normally would. I got a great result. I put no time into it. That's leverage. Most people are uncomfortable with that because you're like, well, what if? What if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? What if? She picks out something you don't like. What? Yeah, those are all potential downside. But look at the upside. Look at the upside. I got this incredible apartment decorated. I didn't have to pay a lot for it. It was done on time with a lot of passion from a talented decorator. And I didn't have to spend any time. So, uh, yeah, a friend, probably, a friend of mine says real wealth is discretionary time, right? We can always yeah. make more money. You can't get that time back. That's right. That's right. So, so, so on that note, what what are what are the top two three pieces of advice would you give Mark of twenty years ago, back in the banker days, back in the you know startup days? What do you wish you knew then that you know now? I mean, maybe it's hard to always like say you wish you knew this because everything worked out okay. But but you know, I'd probably say you know if I known and appreciated you know the the missionary. Versus the mercenary earlier. It didn't take seven years in banking before I realized it. I think that would have been great. I think starting the career with that perspective on being a missionary. I think the other thing was, and I didn't know this at the time, I just got lucky, but most people think about when they're working at a job, they sort of think, well, how much money is the job paying? And what's the what's the actual job? And then like what's the company you're working for? Those are the, the typical three things. What I don't hear people say is, who are you actually working for? I would flip that upside down. That would be my number one. Actually, what are you getting paid, especially early in your career, would be the bottom. Who are you working for? You know, 
and and probably the company and and so the values and like you don't learn the most from the person and the company that you're working for early in your career not the job the job you can go in and out of jobs change you know learn all kinds of things that i think that's less valuable because you're going to wind up changing your job a lot but i i would say who are you working for the person that's going to shape you know how you think about business how you think about working that's where you're going to get the most value so those are those are the things for final question, I, I want you to give me a give us a glimpse into your crystal ball. What are you most excited about? What are you anticipating most in the new year? Probably what everybody else is here. I, I'm really excited <laughs> to get a a vaccine out there and sort of get back to being able to go to events again and 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 go go back to the office and you know socialize with people. That has to be it, you know. In, at least this, in this coming year, looking at it a little bit further. I'm really excited to see some of these new innovations really come to life, like eVTOLs and, and flying cars and things like that. It's been, uh, it's been great to have you. Thanks for being our guest on today's podcast. Thank you so much. If you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curvebenders book on why strategic relationships will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. This will be book number 11 with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, great interviews like the one you heard today. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the members of our NOR forum community. So go to norgroup.com slash forum and check out the Curve Benders thread for more details. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curve Benders podcast with Mark Laurie. I love speaking with intelligent, driven, and successful entrepreneurs who find a unique opportunity to build, scale, and exit something amazing. Three comments Mark made during our interview really resonated with me. Number one was the whole VCP, vision, capital, people is 90% of what really matters. Are you really focused on the few things that can make enormous difference and really create enormous value? Number two was the whole spotic, smart, passionate, optimistic, tenacious, kind, and empathetic people. I'm always really curious about the key attributes great leaders look for in how they attract, how they develop, how they elevate exceptional talent. I love his comment about optimism. You got to believe in it. You got to believe you can do it. Otherwise, a non-starter. The sixth gear of entrepreneurship, obviously the title of this session, digging deeper to another level. When others give up, when others have had enough, when other be- others believe it's too difficult or it's too hard or the hill's too you know steep to climb, entrepreneurs dig deep and they find another level of commitment, another level of uh, really uh, grit, another level of just passion and tenacity and drive to kind of push through. I believe many people have that in them within large organizations or entrepreneurial ventures. And it's just finding that sixth gear. Okay, a couple bonus points. Uh, Missionary versus mercenary. Values that create value and lifting people up by trusting them. That blind trust that he talked about is so difficult for so many of us. But I love his comment that if you really believe in people and and you demonstrate that, they're not going to want to let you down. And they want to... 
you know, do their best. And I'm still amazed that he bought a car sight unseen and same thing with decorating his apartment. But think of how much time he saved by not micromanaging either one of those like rest of us may. And then one other one is who are you working for? I have teenagers. I'm coaching them through very early stages of their their you know jobs and and finding opportunities and you know really reiterating the person who will shape how you think about business, the person that will take you under his or her wings, and teach you not just about the business but how to be a better human being, how to be a better manager, better leader. These are all incredible insights that I hope you'll go back and listen to. Don't forget, I turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so check them out on our blog at norgroup.com slash blog. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work, so I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag CurvebendersPodcast, so make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. Thank you.